Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 20, and we see God reiterating his promise to Israel that he has not abandoned them and that they do not need to worry. Instead, they need to respond to what God is doing by leaning only on him, leaning only on him. And after everything that I just said about Veritas East, it's fitting for us to come to this passage of scripture going into the new year, not because we're dealing with the judgment of God, praise the Lord, <laughs> as a congregation. We're not, we're not enduring God's judgment. There's no impending uh, force that's coming to threaten us. There's nothing like that, but we are a new congregation still, only a year old, still learning, still things are changing, still figuring out how to get all the way through a service without something happening to the screen or something happening to uh, the sound or something, you know, whatever it might be. Um, and that's great. I mean, that's part of us being a new work. But we're new. It's a new year coming up. There's new challenges, new needs that are on our plate new opportunities for us to seek out the Lord and truthfully for us to learn and understand the truth that we serve the same God today who was the God that planted us a year ago, who was the God that was our God when we were attending the short north or wherever else we might have been prior to that. He's the same God that saved and called us. It's the same God that is present as we go into this coming year. And we're going to need to learn to lean on him as a body and him alone not anybody or anything else. And this is the message that God is trying to press home to the nation of Israel as we come to Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20 and following. So I'm gonna give you the punchline. Now, the punchline on the front end is that God is trying to teach Israel to lean on him alone. It's not about the immediate situation. It's not about the circumstances that we find ourselves in right now. It's not even about what's immediately ahead of us, that next step and that, th that thing we see us going into. Instead, it's about God's big picture. And it sounds oxymoronic, but we're going to focus today on God's big picture. So that said, I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 10, verse, verses 20 through 25, and then we'll jump into the message. In that day... The remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the, land, as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make it a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while, my, my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for uh, yet another wonderful day. And Lord, all of the songs that we sang, there's too many words to try to repeat now, but they just pointed us to you in such a beautiful way, our need for you, the value of confession and repentance and turning from our sin to you, our faithful great God. Thank you for the fact that there is no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. We're not separated from you. Rather, we are brought back to you 
by the blood of the cross, by the blood of your son, the lamb that takes away our sin. And so, Lord, as we come to this portion of Scripture, we pray that you would uh, open up our hearts to receive the message that's been proclaimed here. God, we pray that you would help us to, uh, to rest in you and in you alone, that we would not seek any other source of comfort, peace, happiness, but you, our God. Lord, we trust you for what you're going to do. Please hide me behind the cross as I pray, Lord, every time I come before your people, that you would be heard and seen and not me. Thank you for the message that you have given me and taught me and convicted me of. Speak to your people, we pray today in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so everything that we've talked about has, up until this point, has been talking about God trying to get Israel, who is, who is far from him, whether it's the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, whether it's Israel, Ephraim, Jacob, whatever you, term you're using for the northern kingdom, or Judah, the southern kingdom, who are far from God spiritually to draw them back to him, everything up until this point. And this might sound redundant, the message might sound redundant, but truthfully, it's the same message. Not because of me and a lack of preparation or anything like that, but simply because God is still trying to press home the point that he is present in the lives of these people. And he's not just doing this for no reason. God has a purpose. So that's the first point this morning, is that God is doing everything that he's doing for a purpose. We read in verse, uh, verses 20 and 21 of chapter 10, in that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. So what's the purpose? Why is God doing this? He's doing it to refine and to sanctify his chosen people. He knows that they will not be able to come back to him. They will not be able to be close to him, to, to have a true deep knowledge of him, unless their sin is purged. And unfortunately, he recognizes that they are not capable of purging that sin. He has to take them through something to do it. And so God is trying to redirect the affections of his people back to him. And so we, we, as we look at the, the text, we see kind of this, this first phrase in verse 20, in that day, the remnant of Israel. Well, in what day? If you were to back up, we won't read it now, but back up to verses 16 through 19 of chapter 10. And we can see God's destruction and his punishment of Assyria for their uh, the work that they did uh, in Israel for their destruction that they enacted, their abuse of the people, and even their pride in thinking that they were doing something great, not recognizing that God was using them as his rod of correction. So God will judge Assyria. He will deal with them. And in that day, God's people will see God's goodness, his faithfulness, his patience, his love, his care for them his presence in their lives, and they will return. And that word return is really important. It's important that we understand this is not a passive thing. It's not that they will be returned. They will actively, intentionally respond to what God has done in turning from what they had been doing to him. And they will turn back to not Israel, 
Although it's implied that the people will come from captivity back to their borders, back to their lands. They will come back to Israel, back to the promised land. But that's not what they're returning to. What does it say in verse 21? A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. That's what God is after, not their land. He's going to make sure that they're in their land. He's promised them that. God is after their hearts. He wants them to come back to him. And so this morning, we're faced with that kind of that same concept. They will return physically and spiritually back to God. And so we have to ask the question, just like Israel asked, would have to ask the question. Up until that point, they found their comfort, they found their peace, they found their rest in their borders. They found their rest in the fact that they're God's chosen people, that they're his children in his land that they promised them and that he put them in. They didn't find their rest in God. They found their rest in their military power. They found their rest in their comfort and their economic prowess. They were well off as a nation. They had the temple in the southern kingdom. They had all of these great things that they could proclaim and claim. But that's not what God was after. And that's not what God was returning them to. That was not where they were to find their rest. They were not to find their rest there. They were to find their rest in their peace in God. And so this morning, we have to ask ourselves the same question. Where do we find our rest? Where do we find our peace? Is it in our family? Is it in our finances? This sounds redundant, I know. But it's a constant struggle. It's a constant challenge. Do we find our peace and our physical health? All of these things will go away at some point. Sometimes in a devastating fashion, sometimes completely unexpected, sometimes slowly but surely, but they're all going to go away. Prayerfully, we don't find our peace and our hope and our rest in those things, rather that we would find them in God. And that's hard. But that's the desire that God has for us. And so when we hope in anything other than God, and when we long for our rest and our, and our comfort to be found in anything other than God, that mentality, that, act, that attitude, those actions deserve destruction. They deserve judgment. And we don't like to hear that. But that's what God says. And and it's interesting because we continue through the passage in verse 22. We see what God is saying here. He says, for though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, he's reminding them of the promise. Yes, you are the people of this. Even though your people are as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will return. Now, why is that? Because only a remnant will truly respond in proper faith. And so only a portion of them will respond the proper way. And so because of that, destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. And that is so rich and so important. We'll just kind of go through this here a little bit. So God's judgment of Israel is completely justified, completely justified. Some people might say, wait a minute, God, you're abandoning your people. You say that you haven't, but look at how you're behaving. Look at everything that you're putting them through. Is it really necessary? And yes, it is. But it's important also for us to recognize that God is not judging this ethnic group. He's not judging the nation of Israel as a country. He's judging the people and their hearts. He's looking at their hearts and their intentions. 
He's judging their faith. And in Romans 9, we won't look there, but Romans 9 talks about this concept that is true Israel is not just the people that were born from the seed of Abraham. True Israel is not a bloodline. True Israel is people that respond to the promise of God in faith. And that's how we get to be a part of God's chosen people. Because I know I'm not Jewish, <laughs> but praise the Lord, I respond thankfully to the prompting of the Holy Spirit so that now I can be accounted among the sons of God. Amen. And so this is God's intention. He wants to see how people respond. What is their faith? And faith meaning, again, their response to the knowledge of who God is and what he's done and who they are in him. When you recognize who you are in God, we have to respond and act on that. And that's what God is looking for in these people. And so although many are recipients of God's goodness and grace, his mercy, all those things, only a portion of them, portion of them have true faith. Jesus spoke to this to a degree. And he gave an example. He told, or excuse me, it's recorded in Scripture, a situation that helps us to kind of see this. And I see myself in this very, very clearly. In Luke chapter 17, Luke chapter 17, we'll go ahead and read it briefly. <clears throat> Verses 11 through 19. On the way to Jerusalem, he, meaning Jesus, was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. And so you read that and you think, man, that was great. Their faith saved them. Their faith healed them. That's an amazing truth. Thank you, Lord, for showing us that all they had to do was respond in faith and start going, and then they would be healed. But look at how things went from there. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. He was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return to give praise to God except this foreigner? God's not, Jesus isn't looking down on him because he's a foreigner. He's saying, what about my people? What about my people, my chosen people? I healed you, and you didn't come back. Someone who is not even of the bloodline of the chosen people has returned in true faith. What does he say? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Christ accounted his response, this leper's response, to true faith. And so what do the other nine deserve? The other nine who were healed but did not respond in praise, what do they deserve? They deserve judgment. <laughs> That's hard. They deserve judgment, just like the rest of Israel who received all of God's blessings, all of his grace, all of his goodness for all of those years, but did not respond in faith and love and praise and devotion to him. God's doing this for a purpose. He's trying to turn the heart of Israel back to him. 
This brings us to the second point, because without the second part of this, it could really still seem kind of cold and distant and hard. But this is a good thing for us to know, is that God is doing this to Israel for a time. It's only for a time. Read with me verses 24 and 25 of Isaiah chapter 10. Therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in a very little while my fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. What's God saying? I will relent eventually. Eventually. He will respond. He will punish Assyria just like he did Egypt and Midian. And he's, he's bringing up these, these very major, very difficult experiences that Israel went, to, went through for a reason. These are, are milestones in the history of the nation. And they know how bad it was in Egypt. They know that God was the only way that they were brought out. They know how bad things were when Gideon and all of the rest of the nation were subject to the Midianites and how God did something amazing with only 300 men against this entire army. They know that God is the one that's doing the work of salvation and redemption and protection. And so God is telling them, eventually I will do to Assyria the same thing that I did to these other people. It's only meant for a season. Well, now, how long is a little while? How long is a season? And like I mentioned at the beginning, we're talking about God's big picture. So in God's big picture, a little while could be a couple months. A little while could be decades. Now, that's hard. Aaron, that's like, you're like, come on, man, that's the fifth that's hard you've given us. <laughs> My back is bending under all of the that's hards. But I, this, the point that is here that God is not completely abandoning and saying this will go on until you die forever. You're, you as a nation will be completely destroyed. The point that God is making is that this is not Israel's end. He's committed to them. Look, look at the language that God uses. He says, oh, my people. He could have just said, all right, you guys over there in Zion, don't worry, because they'll be punished. But no, he says, my people, my people, reminding them of the promise, reminding them of the commitment that he'd made to them. They are still God's people. He could have been very general here, but he wasn't. He was very intentional, very direct. My people who live in Zion. He could have just said, oh, Zion and just talked about the city. He, no, he said, who live in Zion, I see you. You are my people, and I see you in Zion. My promised land that I've given you, I'm committed to you, is what God is saying. There's so much good news wrapped up in those two little phrases. God is present in the depths of his big picture. I'll say that again. God is present in the depths and the difficulties and the struggle of the big picture. It's not all about that little situation or that single circumstance, but he's there. He's present in it. They are his people. He's not forgotten his promises. And so what are the promises of God for us today? This is something that we regularly do in our community group. Either if someone uh, mentions that they're struggling with something, there's something that they're having a hard time with, 
and they need some, something to help them trust God and rest in him. We'll regularly say, okay, family, what are some of the promises of God that we can give to our brother or sister to help them stand? And man, to hear the saints of God in humility and in commitment to the care of their brother or sister, pouring out their hearts and saying, this is something that has helped me. This is something that I cling to. And they start quoting the promises of God, flipping through their Bibles. You hear, I mean, the, the, it's like people's hair being blown back from the pages turning in their Bibles. People are digging and saying, oh man, this is a good one for me too. And, and stuff like, uh, he'll never leave us nor forsake us. I mean, that's often quoted, but it's a powerful truth. Look at the birds of the air, how, how they neither sow nor reap. They don't store up in barns, but they don't go without food, and you're more important than them. And if you think that's one thing, you worry about your clothes. Look at the lilies of the field. They don't toil or spin. They don't make garments, but look at how beautifully they're arrayed. And if God's going to take care of them that way, look at how he's going to take care of you. So if you would simply seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, here's the promise. All these things will be added unto you. You don't have to worry. The promises of God that we hold on to, that we cling to, one of mine, be anxious for nothing, but in all things through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving make your requests known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 4, 6 and 7. I love the truth of the promises of God. There is no temptation that has seized you except what is common to man. But God is faithful. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to bear. But he's provided a way of escape that when the temptations come, you'll be able to stand up under it. And this isn't just kind of bearing this thing and continuing to bear it. But this is the promise that you can bear it and cast it off. Amen. That's what God has promised to us. So we're not alone. We're not abandoned. He's with us through the difficulties of our life. He's with us through the things that he brings into our life for our correction, for judgment. He's with us through the things that he allows into our life for sanctification. He's with us through the things that we bring onto ourselves because of our sinfulness. All for the purpose of redirecting our attention and our affections to him. Like we talked about last week, one of the biggest difficulties that we have with our lives is our pride. And God is breaking our pride in many cases, just like he was with the nation of Israel. He's revealing sin in our hearts for the purpose of restoring us back to him. But the promises of God are still true. Now, the question that we have today for us as a family is, do we feel like these promises are real? Do, do we feel them right now? Or, or is it hard? Do we, do we feel like we're on our own? Are we going through the, one of the most difficult times in our lives? That might be the case for some of us. Some of us may be floating. Some of us may be elated. Some of us may be really in the best place of our lives. And praise God for that. But many of us are struggling with this. And so I say to you today, do not be afraid, O people of God, who live in Amberley, who live in Blacklick Estates, who live in Whitehall, who live in Reynoldsburg, who live in Gahanna, who live in Pickerington, in Canal Winchester, in Groveport. Do not be afraid. You are God's people. He sees you. He knows you. He's with you. He loves you. You're not alone. You're a part of God's big picture. 
And he's with you in the midst of the depths of this big picture. And it's because of this that Paul is able to write in Romans chapter 8. He writes, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Hallelujah. Lord, that we are not suffering for nothing. We're suffering that we might be glorified. We're suffering in Christ and along with Christ that we might be glorified along with Christ. There's hope in the midst of our suffering. It's for a time. It's for a purpose. There's hope in, our, in, in the things that we're learning, the pain and the, and the difficulties, because it's for a time, it's for a purpose. And as I close, Isaiah goes directly where we need to go from this point on. We were skipping over kind of the section, verses 26 through 34. That's kind of the talking about the Assyrian invasion. Read through that when you get a chance. I mean, that's Isaiah seeing the path that Assyria will take. And all of those names, they're all towns and peoples that Assyria is passing through. And in one town, they take them over, and they just kind of set their baggage there. I mean, it's just like they're, they're setting things there in preparation for the next attack. They're just advancing through the, the, the land of Israel. So read through that when you get a chance. But from there, Isaiah talks about the destruction of Assyria, just like a forest is going to be hewn down, and he goes right where we need to go. How is it that we're able to receive the promises of God, believe them, trust them, know that we are known by God and we are his people? It is in Christ. It is in the Messiah. And that's where Isaiah goes in chapter 11. The third point is God is doing this so that Messiah may come. He's, he's taking Israel through this, he's purging Israel, and he's committing for there to be a remnant so that Messiah can come from that remnant. He's, he's doing this so that the stump, remember the stump from back in, in Isaiah chapter 6, and a stump shall be its seed, the holy seed of Israel. This is, the, this is what I was talking about, that when everything is laid bare, everything is laid waste, and there's nothing left but stumps of people, we have this truth. In Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. This promise of the coming Messiah brings so much hope to the people of Israel in that time, and it brings us so much hope today. Specifically because he was the perfect fulfillment of the, the, the line of Davidic kings. All of those other kings from David on, they all failed in one way or another, whether it was morally or administratively, they all failed in one way or another. But Messiah, when he comes, oh, he's going to be the perfect king. He's going to be the perfect king. He's going to fulfill everything that is lacking. This, this, these comments here, the, uh, re, kind of looking at this verse, um, the, there's, they're twofold. So the, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. That's the concept of, of data, information, him having it and knowing it and being able to apply it very specifically in a way that no one else could apply it. 
So you remember in chapter 9, we talked about him being a wonderful counselor. He's going to be able to take this knowledge and this information and in his infinite wisdom, apply it in a way that no one else can. And that brings us hope when we're struggling with confusion and when we need to turn to James and and, uh, ask God to give us knowledge and wisdom when we ask and trust that he's going to do it. This next one, the spirit of counsel and might, those are terms in the Hebrew that are talking about military strategy. The counsel is military strategy, looking at the situation and figuring out the best course of action to be victorious. And the might is the power to be able to actually do it. And I'm trying not to get excited. <laughs> what is the greatest battle that we need to have victory, have victory over? Sin and death. We can have no victory over sin and death in and of ourselves. But Messiah, from the foundations of the world, in counsel with the Godhead, the Father and the Holy Spirit, came up with the best possible plan in order for us. We don't have armies coming to attack us. Some of us may actually have some enemies in our lives, but we don't have total devastation that's coming. No, the one thing that we need victory in is victory over sin and death. And God in the Father, in the Son, and in the Holy Spirit came up with the perfect plan, and he had the ability to be able to do it. That's why I was crying earlier. Because Jesus was victorious. And I, in him, am victorious. So as we look at these things, the last one, the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, this is this is. Not just information. This is different from the wisdom one. This is, this is intimate relational knowledge. The knowledge and fear are, are they're tied and they're both subordinate to the Lord in this phrase. So the, the knowledge is intimate relational knowledge of the Lord. And that knowledge of the Lord led to a fear and a trust and a reverence of the Lord. And Jesus embodied that in a perfect way when he came. He submitted himself to the Father's will. He said, I and the Father are one. You don't get to know anybody any better than being one. And so Jesus was the perfect fulfillment of this. And and as we continue to read through this, there's so much good stuff here. We just don't have time for this morning. But the the way that he judges, he's not like a, a, a jury. You know, jury selection, I don't know if anybody in here has ever served on a jury. I've never had to do it. But I hear they ask you a bunch of questions to find out if you're going to have biases in one way or another. And and that's not what Jesus does. That's not how he judges. He doesn't judge by what he sees or what he hears. He judges according to righteousness. And as we work our way through this passage, we see that righteousness is the belt of his waist. That big robe that they always walk around in is tied up, and he's ready to go. He's ready to move and act in righteousness. It's not flapping and flowing in the wind. No, he's got righteousness ready to go so that he can judge properly and judge justly. And continuing through the passage, verses 6 through 9, just this picture of the restoration of peace, the elimination of of hostilities between a predator and prey, between a child and something as dangerous as a viper or a cobra. There's something that is completely fully restored. The dominion that mankind should have had up until this point would be restored. And so this, this picture of Christ's ruling is an, is an idea or a concept of the peace and the wisdom uh, and the restoration that he would bring being such a stark contrast to life without him. 
And so apart from Christ, there's just confusion and frustration and pain and danger and foolishness. But in him, there's wisdom and there's peace and there's hope. And all of this was necessary so that God could, so that in his perfect wisdom, so that he could preserve Israel, so that Messiah could come, so that we could be saved. (laughs) That's good news, family. That's good news. It sounds simple. It sounds basic. But look at how complex God's plan was and the fact that he preserved it so that we could be counted among the adopted sons and daughters of God. I'm going to close now because I could keep going. There's so much good stuff in here. I'll be here till 1230. Um, But I'm going to close. As we look at this passage, we can close with verse, verse 9. In that day... Excuse me, verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day, in what day? In the day when Israel turns. In the day when Messiah has come. In the day when he is ruling. And we're stuck right now, kind of in that in-between period. In that already, there's something that was a phrase that was kind of famous a few years ago. The already, but not yet. The kingdom is already established. We are already sons and daughters. But just like Romans 8 also says, it's not going to be on the screen or anything, but Romans 8 also talks about how creation is groaning for the adoption of the sons. Well, we've already been adopted. Paul said that earlier in Romans. We've already been adopted, but things are not fully established yet. The good news is that we are in Christ We are Israel, first of all. We are at the mercy of a wise, righteous, faithful God. And that's a good thing because of our foolishness, our sinfulness, and our unfaithfulness. We're at the mercy of a wise and a righteous and a faithful God. If we would just uh, look at this, we are in Christ, understanding the truth that we're in Christ. We're seen by God in Christ. Just like Noah and his family endured the wrath of God, not in their own strength, but inside the ark. The ark took the wrath of God. The ark took the storm and the waves. We are in Christ in the same way. We don't endure the wrath of God. Christ endured the wrath of God on our behalf. And so we are in Christ. God sees us. He sees Christ when he looks at us. We're covered by Christ. And we are present in this kingdom that's already established, that's described here in Isaiah 11, but it's not fully established yet. We get to experience the peace that comes from God. We get to experience Christ's righteous reign and his wisdom and his counsel and his might in our lives. So as we go to pray and we prepare for communion, the challenge for us today is to step back from the situations that we're in, the difficulty of our lives right now, to step back and to look at God's big picture and to understand where we fit in that big picture. We're not hundreds, thousands of years ago at this point where the nation of Israel is, waiting for Messiah to come. No, we are here now. Messiah has come. He is reigning. His kingdom is not of flesh and blood. He is reigning. The kingdom is established, and we are in him and citizens of that kingdom. And so now the call for us is to respond by leaning on him, to respond in repentance, in submission, and in commitment to him. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you again for this day. Thank you for this celebration of our first year. We thank you for the celebration of a new year. We thank you, Lord, for a chance for us to celebrate even our adoption as sons and daughters and our membership in your family. But God, we pray that you would help us to see in our lives either areas of sin, areas of pride, areas of thinking that we've attained, thinking that we've already overcome, and showing us where we are not, where we are not depending on you, where we are resting and trusting in other things beside you. So we pray that you would help us to turn from those things and return to you. Reveal those areas of our lives to us. And Father, praise the Lord, if we are walking with you well, if we are digging into the scripture, if we're in fellowship with you and in communion with you, thank you, Lord, for giving us victory. We pray that you would just give us more and that you would set us on fire. Give us uh, an unction and a desire and a drive to do your work, that we would commit to responding to the message we received by sharing it and giving it to others. And so, God, as we come to your table today, we pray that you would show us again our need to confess, our need to repent, that we can be clean before you, not of in and of ourselves, but because of the work that Christ has done, that we can partake in this meal rightly. And, Father, for the one who's here today who has not given their heart to you, please draw them to you, Lord, because of the hope that's in Christ, the restoration that's in Christ, the fellowship with you that we find in Christ. We pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.